This week's parsha is Parsha's Nayach. The beginning of the parsha says that Nayach was an Ish Tzadik Tamim Haya B'dayrei Sav. He was a man who was a Tzadik, he was Tamim, he was complete, he was perfect. B'dayrei Sav, in his generations, in the plural. And that's very strange. It should have said B'dayrei, in his generation. Person lives in a generation. In my generation, I was this. Why does it say in his generations? So the Sepharno offers that he was in the Dar of Mesushalach and Lamech. His father, his grandfather, he lived in their generations as well. But then everybody does that. If a person could have a grandfather and have a father... So, of course, generally speaking, you're spanning multiple generations, but it's still not normal to describe people as being in, a, in more than one generation. And what I think the pshat is, is that there was something unique about Nayach. There was something very, very unique about Nayach that is not applicable by most other people in that he didn't just live in his generation, he didn't just live in his world, but he was actually a person who straddled two worlds. He lived in the world pre-Mabal, and he lived in the world post-Mabal. He saw the old world, and then that world was destroyed, and then he saw a brand new world. Not only did he see the brand new world, he began rebuilding the brand new world. And about such a person, it's possible, it's shayach, it's appropriate to say that he lived in his generations. He was a tzaddik, tamim b'dayrei sav, in his generations, because he wasn't a man of just one generation. He was unique in that he was alive to see two unique, separate, special, completely different generations, one before the Mabal and one after the Mabal, two different worlds. And I looked in the Medrash Rabbah, and I found that I was sort of machavin to the Medrash. The Medrash, if you want to look it up, it's in Bereshis Rabbah, Lamed Ches, on this Pasuk, but not stressing the word B'day Reisav as much as the word Tamim Haya B'day Reisav. The word Haya is what's underlined, Reb Levi Amar, Kal Nishenemar by Haya, whoever it says about the word Haya, Ra'a Eilam Chadash, was a man that saw a whole new world. Haya is like a lushen of his chachas. There was a newness to, to, to Nayach. He saw a new world. Esma el Avanim Shachakumayim. He was a man who saw the world being destroyed. The stones were eradicated. They were melted down to nothing. That's what happened by the Mabel. The boiling heat basically just caused the world to have a complete meltdown. And then he was able to emerge from the Teva, him and his family, and start all over again. He was a man that was Haya. He saw a new world. El Elam Chadash, is that possible only because he was Zeichet to see a new world? 
And I think that ties very well, that dovetails with Bedai Reisav. He had his own generation. He had the old generation that he grew up in, and then he had a brand new generation, the generation post-Mabal, a new world, a Haya, a Hischachis of the world. Now, Nayach wasn't the only person in history to experience such a thing. During the time of the Churban Beis HaMikdash, there was a very, very similar type of experience. The Beis HaMikdash, the Bayes Rishon, was destroyed. The Bayes Rishon was a, an amazing place that had Hashras Hashchina. The second Beis HaMikdash, believe it or not, it was a beautiful, it was a very mephoridic palace. It was a beautiful makim that was built, but it wasn't, it was lacking things that were found in the Bayes Rishon, were not found in the Bayes Rishon. One of them was Hashras Hashchina. So during the Bayes Rishon, you went into the Beis HaMikdash, you felt palpably the Shechina. You didn't have that experience in the Bayes Rishon, in the Bayes Rishon. The Churban took place, the first Bayes HaMikdash was destroyed, Seventy years later, after we went into Golis Bavel, we came back up, Ezra came back up, and he took Klal Yisrael, whoever came with him, not so many people came with him, but people came, they rebuilt a Bayesheni. And there's a Pasuk that says about this experience, it's a Pasuk in Ezra, Parakimo, Psukim Yud Aleph and Yud Beis, that when they had an inauguration of the Bayesheni, picture the scene, they were in a terrible Gullus, in Gullus Bavel, that's when the whole Mice of Purim came about, uh, we were almost destroyed, the Hashman Lahar Abed, Klai Yisrael comes out of that alive, that experience, they come up to the base, to Eretz Yisrael again, they rebuild the Bayesheni, and it was a tremendous simcha, when it was finally rebuilt by the inauguration, the Pasuk says, Vayanu Bahalu Vahaydais Lashem, Kitayv Lailam Chastai, Al Yisrael, there were blasts of truis, and there was musical instruments, and there was halal, there was haida. On the fact that there was the bias that was being established. And then the Pasuk says, it's, a, it's such a, a beautiful Pasuk, it's so sad. But the people, there were still people that were alive from the Bayes Rishon. This wasn't 2,000 years later, it wasn't 200 years later. It was 70 years later, 70 and some change years later. There were still Zakanim that remembered the Bayes Rishon. So all of the relatively younger people, they, were, they thought this was great. The Bayes Sheni is back, we have the Beis HaMikdash again, and they... they Appropriately, they sang Halal and Haidan and Kultura Gedaila. Everything was beautiful because they think this is, this is it. But the Kaihanim and the Levim and the Zakanim that lived in the time of the Bayes Rishain, they saw the old world pre-Churban. They understood that this is a beautiful thing, but it ain't what it used to be. It used to be Ashras Hashchina. There were things that existed by the Bayes Rishain that were lacking here. So the new generation, they didn't get it. They thought everything was great because they think, you know, the younger generation always thinks that this is it. What we live in now is it. Can't get better than this. But people that lived in the Altaheim, in the old home, in the, in the, back in the olden days, they, they knew implicitly that there was something lacking. They were crying. 
the Kaihanim and the Levim, the Rosh Avis Haskenim, who saw the Bayis Arishain when it was established. So they were Beichim Bekal Gadol. Their tears were drowned out by all of the fanfare that was being made by the, by the bands, by the parties, but they were crying because they saw two generations. They lived B'day Reisav. They had plural generations. They saw the old world, and then they saw the new world, and they knew the, the difference. And that caused them to cry. Some people live in two generations. They live in two completely different worlds. And there's vast differences between the two worlds, and their eyes saw both. Nayach saw the pre-mabal and the post-mabal. The people in the bias Rishain that lived to see the Bayashani lived to straddle both worlds. And of course, to bring it a little closer to home, people that went through the Churban in Europe, the concentration camp survivors, the Holocaust survivors, they saw a world that was completely different than the new world. They saw an old world before the Mulchama, and then they saw a new world after the Mulchama. Two different universes. It's B'day Reisav. Pre-mabal, post-mabal, pre-chorban, post-chorban. It was two different worlds. They saw the world, you know, the black and white world of pre-war Europe where there were shtetlach, there were chassidim, there were tzaddikim, there were, there were you know, Yiddish mamas, Jewish mothers, that, 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 the classic Jewish mothers with the, you know, with the tichels and cooking and sholent and, and kugel and, and everything, bitsnias, bitusha v'tara, and living in shtetlach and living in different uh, places in Europe and seeing g'dayle Ailam. And then, after the Chorban, after all of that was destroyed and the Nazis completely eradicated every vestige of Klal Yisrael, of Yiddishkeit, they came to America, they came to Eretz Yisrael, they came to Europe, and they had to rebuild, and they tried their best, and they succeeded beyond anyone's imagination. But it was a different world. It's not the same world as it used to be. There are some ways that it might be better than the old world, but there are many ways that it's not. And that Klal Yisrael has suffered so much because of the Chorban, and what we don't have, the amount of tzaddikim. Imagine what Klai Yisrael would look like today without the world having gone up in flames. And how many tzaddikim, how many more yidin there would be if six million people died, how many would that be today? How many, maybe 20 million, 40 million, I don't know this, how, how they multiply, but it would be maybe 100, but today how many yidin are there in the world? Maybe 10 million, I'm not sure exactly the number but it would probably be vastly greater, vastly more holy, and we, we lost whole kehilas. But there are people that were around in that time, and, then there was, and they survived, and they lived to tell about it, and they talked about the, the experiences that they had, and they wrote them in books. And then they were able to somehow transmit some of that Messiah, if not all of it, but at least a time of it, to the generation that came after them. Ramardachai Gifter was one such person. The Rashiva of Tells in Cleveland, a tremendous guy. He was actually born in America. An amazing thing, he was born in a place called Portsmouth, Virginia. If anyone thinks, you know what, I can never be a Gadol because I was born in, uh, you know, in this place, Yehupitz, 
you know, I was born in this place and that city and that. So, you know, you have to be born in, like, in Lakewood to be a Gadol. You have to be born in Kletsk or in, uh, in Brisk to be a Gadol. And Mordechai Gifter was born in a place that, like, the most out-of-town place in, in the country, Portsmouth, Virginia. I don't know what they, very little was happening there. Uh, you know, and he, he grew up there, and then he went to, uh, um, he went to uh, um, Yeshiva, Yeshiva Yitzchak Elchanan a little bit, and he was influenced there by certain rabbeim to go to Eretz Yisrael, and he went to Tells. And he was obviously, you know, I don't think he came in as advanced as the people his age who were learning since their crib, but very quickly he advanced he became a gain. I heard people saying that pe- that the he just came like a few months ago, and there were already guys that were that were seasoned tellsers that were lined up to talk to him and learning to ask him kashas and learning. American boy, born and bred, mamish American as American can be from Virginia, and he spoke a uh, real English, and he and then he developed a perfect Yiddish. If you ever hear his. Uh, his speeches, you can find them online. He had a beautiful English. He was very eloquent. And he was a spokesperson for Klal Yisrael. He spoke at the Aguda conventions and very many, you know, CMSHASs. And he was always like the keynote speaker. You always wanted to hear what Rav Gifter said. And then, and his Yiddish was even more beautiful than his English. He had a real Yiddish. It wasn't just like, you know, like a, a superficial type of Yiddish like many people have today. It was a real, like he knew all the words and he knew exactly how to say it and how to put a doggish on and it. I know many of you, if not all of you, don't speak Yiddish, but if you even speak, have a little bit of an appreciation for it and you listen to it, you're going to be amazed. Rabbi Yashavar Salavechik also had such a Yiddish, like a beautiful, rich Yiddish. And, and Rav Gifter basically spent his, his formative years in Tells, which was called Malchus Tells. Tells had a, an aristocracy to it. It was like the most royal regal of yeshivas in, in Lithuania. And there was, a, there was a, just a Malchus to it. The Rosh Hashiva was the Melech. And the, it was just a beautiful place to learn and to steig and musler and everything. And then came along the Churban and he, him and his wife, he married the, uh, one of the Blochs, one of the, uh, the first families of Tells. And he, he was able to get out in time. He was in America, and they, he was a Rav in Waterbury um, for a number of years. And eventually he became one of the Rosh Hashivas in Tells Cleveland, which was founded by two Rosh Hashivas from Tells Litta, who happened to be on a fundraising trip when the war broke out, and they couldn't get back. And so they founded the yeshiva in, in Cleveland, a beautiful campus, if you've ever seen it. Rav Gifter was the Rosh there. But Rav Gifter... Kimat, every speech that he made and every schmooze, he always remembered how it looked before the war, how Tells used to be, and the beauty of Tells, and the Kedusha of Tells, the Tyra of Tells, and what was lost, how the Pashat of Alabatim in Tells, the simple layman in Tells, how they used to learn and how smart they were, how brilliant they were, and the amount of learning that they did on Shabbos and at nights and and. It was a different world. We don't have that today as much, if, if at all. I was Zeicha once, I've spoken about this many times, but I was Zeicha when I was learning as a Bachar in Eretz Yisrael, I was learning in yeshiva called Kol Taira, it's in Bayit Vagan. And my Rebbe uh, told me that Rav Gifter is in Eretz Yisrael. He, I think he had a grandchild, Chasna, if I'm not mistaken, and he's actually staying in a house 
not far from the yeshiva, maybe a five-minute walk from the yeshiva, and it's Kedai, maybe just go, to, go over and talk to him in learning, shmuzah them, it's Kedai. So I went with, uh, with two friends, and we knocked on the door, the Rebetzin was there, she opened the door, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I didn't want to in, in, you know, intrude on, on Rav Gifter, and he was the Mamish the Gadladar, and uh, he sat us down, and he schmoozed with us for over an hour, and in the middle of this, of, of us schmoozing with him, just as an aside, but not really an aside, Rav Shach came, knocked on the door, there was a knock on the door, he runs up to open the door, and it was Rav Shach, un, un, unannounced, Rav Shach, there was Rav Shach standing, also the other Gadladar, and I was sitting there, we didn't have phones, there was no cameras, I was like, you know, that's Gehenim for me, like, to be in a room with Rav Shach and Rav Gifter and not have a camera, but, um, and they hugged and they kissed. They were very, very close and they schmoozed a little bit. The Rav, Gif- Rav, Rav, Rav Shach went back. He was already probably a man in his late 80s, early 90s. And he, uh, he went back to Bnei Brak. He just came through Shalim Special just to give Shalom to Rav Gifter, which is an amazing thing in and of itself. And, and Rav Gifter told me, he says, every time I come to Eretz Yisrael, I tell Rav Blazer, don't come to me, I'm going to come to you. And he always beats me to the punch. That's what he's... So one of the things there, then I went back another day and I spoke to him for another hour privately. It was just an amazing experience. But one of the things that Rav Gifter told us was he was describing Tal's Lita. And I don't think it was written, I don't think this was written down anywhere. I, 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 it was in Rav Gifter's biography in Art Scroll. I'm quoted as saying this Misa over, but I don't think it was ever mentioned anywhere else. Um, that Musser Seder and Tells was unbelievable. In the olden days, they didn't have lights, electricity like we did. They, they, they lit like lanterns, if you can imagine such a thing. They didn't have in these back, especially maybe in, 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 in fancy cities, they perhaps had electricity at this period. But like in, in places like, you know, these backwater towns and, and Tells, a small little, you know, I don't think it was a, a major, you know, Stadt in Europe, so they, they, had, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have all, so they, they lit, they lit uh, lanterns in the base matter to light it up. So Musser Seder used to be, always, it wasn't like a set time of Musser Seder, like every other yeshiva in the world. They made Musser Seder start a certain amount of time, I don't know exactly the number, but a certain amount of time, let's call it 15 minutes, before, uh, before like by Shkia time, let's say that's where they would start. And everybody would take their Musr Svarim while the base Medrash was still lit by the sun, by the day, daylight, and they would start learning um, whatever the Sefer that was that they were learning, Mishlos Hisharim, Tamer Devairach, Archasadik, whatever it was that they were learning. And they didn't do it like, you know, like Dafyaimidik. They didn't learn Musr, you know, like to finish the whole Sefer. Today, we want, I want to finish Mishlos Hisharim, I want to finish. That's not, that's not the way Musr was really designed to be learned. Like one time a guy came to me in the base Medrash and he said, Rebbe, are you going to be here after Meirib? I said, I'm going home. He says, well, I'm making a siyam. I said, oh, beautiful, and what? So he said, in Mislos Yisharim. So I, I didn't put in, um, you know, but I'm thinking, I was thinking to myself, it's not as safer to make a siyam on. Obviously, it's good to finish the Mislos Yisharim, but it's not designed to be, to be finished. It's not, like a, it's not like data that you're accumulating data and you, you know, I finished a certain amount. 
Mesos Yesharim is a fine wine that has to be savored. It has to be, every word has to be drank and, and appreciated and, 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 and intoxicate you with Kedusha and with morality and with ethics and with honesty and with, with Kalmida Nechayna. So they would take a Mesos Yesharim, let's say, and they would start reading one line, just one sentence in the Mesos Yesharim, and they would read it over again and over again and over again. As they were reading it again and again and again, the sun was going down, the base Medrash was getting darker and darker and darker until it was pitch black. They didn't turn on the lights right away. They didn't light the candle right away. They let it sit. They let it be pitch black. Because when it's pitch black, there was no inhibitions. And people were crying and they were screaming and they were taking in the musr. And the words that they had memorized now by heart, that one line of whatever it was, it, be- it became a part of them. It coursed through their blood veins. And they were able to like drink it in and, and, and savor it and appreciate it until it really changed them and affected them in such a deep way. That was Musa Seder and Tells. That's the way he described to me Musa Seder and Tells. Unbelievable. So when Rav Gifter, he actually lived in Eretz Yisrael for many years. He lived in Tellstone. There was Yeshiva. They started a Tells branch there. And then after the Yeshivas in America died, were Nifter, were Nifter, so they asked him to come back and assume the role as, as the Rosh Yeshiva, and he didn't want to go. He, didn't, he, wanted, he loved Eretz Yisrael, him and his Rebetzin, you know, they took to Eretz Yisrael, and they were, you know, where, and, and they, just, they just wanted to stay there. And they, they didn't know what to do, so they asked the stipler, the stipler Paskin, that he has to go back to America, and he has to assume the role as Rosh Yeshiva there. That's more important than staying in Eretz Yisrael. And he really was very upset about it, but he was Makabal Adastaira. And he went back to America, but he never moved back to a house in Cleveland. He lived in, I think, in the dorms in, in Tells with his wife. He never wanted to be in a permanent home again in Chutzleritz. And he, uh, you know, the rabbits and I went to visit her a couple of years ago with my daughter. They li- she lives today in Tom's River. And she showed me, they, they, she had, her husband had a leaf in, that he kept in his Gemara from Eretz Yisrael, like in Eretz Yisrael, the leaf that he, to remind him about the beautiful, you know, leaves of Eretz Yisrael, the nature of Eretz Yisrael. So, but he went back to Eretz Yisrael and he, uh, and, and uh, somebody asked him if he went to the Kaisel yet. Did you go to Kever Rachel yet? And he says, yeah, I actually just went today to both places. So this person asked him, where were you more nisragish? Where did you have more of an emotional connection? Like sometimes you go to a place and all of a sudden the tears start coming out. Like where did you have it? Was it by the Kaisel or was it by Kevarachel? And if both, which one more? So he said, I, he says, by the Kaisel. And the person who asked him, this Talmud was surprised. And he saw the surprise in his Talmud's face and, and he says, I understand why you're surprised because most people have the opposite reaction. Most people, they go to Kever Rachel, Mam Rachel, and they, they start crying there and that's the place that they feel the Ikeregish. You know, by the Kaisel they feel it a little bit, but it's much stronger, that relationship. He says, I understand why you have that feeling because you had a mother and your mother cared for you, hopefully, and she baked you cookies, and she made you hot milk, and she, uh, and she tucked you into bed at night, and she said Kriyashma with you, and she, and she clothed you, and she drove you to Yeshiva. So you, you understand what a mother is. And, and, so, and, and so Mama Rachel is the mother of mothers, so you, you have that natural kinship to Mama Rachel. But 
he says, when it comes to a churban, you don't understand what churban is. So when you go to the Kaisal and you see, you see that this is like the, the it's the makam of the churban Beis HaMikdash, and this is the last wall of the, you know, of the Beis HaMikdash, so it, it, it doesn't necessarily speak to you because you don't understand churban. He says, I understand churban. I lived in that old world. I lived in the pre-war era as I live in this, war, in this era. And I know what Chorban is because I lived in, 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 in a time that I had a Mikdash Ma'at. I had the, the Talzer Beis Medrash. I knew what Rosh Hashivas were. And I knew what Talmidim were. And I knew what Tyre was. And I knew what Musr was. And I knew what, what Adar HaChaim was. I knew what Ashkafas HaChaim was. I saw it with my own eyes. I knew what Beis Yaakovs were. And I knew what Kailim were. I knew. I saw. I saw this Bahadar Tifartam. And then I saw Chorban. I saw destruction. I saw desolation. I saw how the Nazis were, came in and they literally decimated the entire city of Telv. Anashem, Nashem, So I understand Chorban. When I go to Mamarach, of course it's emotional for me, but it doesn't compare to the emotions that I feel when I see the, the three-day base Mikdash Enu, the one remaining wall of the Churban Beis HaMikdash, and I understand there was a Makim HaMikdash, there was a, a, a Beis HaMikdash with a Shechina, with Avaida, with Levi and Bashirim and Zimram, and now there's nothing. I understand that that I could relate to because I saw the old world. And these are unique individuals that are able to understand Dairei Sav, two generations, two worlds. Imagine, just put yourself in, in a Holocaust survivor's eyes for a second. Imagine seeing the old world and then seeing this new world and, and comparing and contrasting and seeing what's better and what's not, but seeing literally two different worlds. Two different worlds. I saw a beautiful Misa, the Blujava Rebbe, one of the great heroes of the Holocaust, how uh, he was able to, um, he had his whole family destroyed in the Holocaust, and he came to America, and he began to uh, recreate a Hasidus, and, and he built, he was uh, one of the G'dayle Yisrael, one of the Tzadikim of Klai Yisrael, and when he was coming into Ellis Island, or when he was in America, he basically... Uh, somebody pointed out that on the Statue of Liberty, there's a very famous poem that was written by a Jewish woman. Her name was Emma Lazarus. And it goes something to the effect, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That was like the line that's on the, that's on the, uh, on the Statue of Liberty. And it's a beautiful line, you know, it's, it's basically welcoming all immigrants, people that are refugees coming into America, the land of the free, uh, come in, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, and, and, and yearning to be free. This is your place, and it's a very welcoming message that, that immigrants, as they, were, as they were sailing by Ellis Island, coming into the shores of America, they took, uh, you know, they, 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 they were able to have nechama from that. The Blue Jarebbe said... It's true. 
We're tired. We're very poor. We have nothing. We have nothing. But we're not masses. We're not masses. He says, we're hardly masses. We are, as the Gemara says in Sanhedrin Kofiud Aleph, we're echad me'ir ushnayim mishpacha. We're one person from a city that survived, two people from a whole family that survived. That's all we are. We don't have the masses of people. There was an acknowledgement to the Blue Rebbe that the whole world was eradicated. There was a mabel that destroyed the whole world that he knew. His chassidim, his anshe maisa, his, the, the girls and the boys and the children, the babies. And to be able to have to now rebuild was a great, great task. But Nayak did it. Nayak brought a carbon. He came out of the car, out of the table. He was exhausted. Gemara says for the whole year he We never saw sleep. We were feeding the animals. There are animals that can only be fed at night. There are animals that can only be fed during the day. There are animals that are fed both at day and night, and we had to feed them exactly the diet that they needed. It wasn't one size fits all. You couldn't give peanuts to everybody on the ship. You had to give meat to some and, 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 and uh, hay to some and straw to some and, and, and other, whatever, whatever needed to be fed. That's what Nayach had to worry about. Him and his sons, the whole, for a whole year, he was exhausted. They never slept. He comes off the table. You'd say, okay, fine. Let me, let me just take a little bit of a vacation a little bit. Sightsee. I don't know, relax a little bit. No, immediately the first thing he does is he brings a carbon to Hashem, even as Mizbeach, and he brings it, and Vayarech Hashem Esreach, and Hashem smells the beautiful aroma, this carbon that Nayach built in this brand new world, and then he says, I'm never going to destroy the world again. Rabbi Yashiv says this word, he says that when he saw the mysterious nefesh of Nayach coming off the Teva, determined to rebuild the world, with Kedusha, with Tara, this is what made HaKadosh Baruch Hu pledge, I will never destroy this world again. And that's what Yidin did when they came off the boat, Elisan, they didn't, they didn't stop and say, you know what, first let me get, get an apartment, and let me get some clothes on my back, and let me figure out what to do for employment. Immediately they jumped in, they started building shuls, mikvais, yeshivas, base Yaakovs, and at the same time, Parnassus, getting remarried, uh, you know, uh, finding shidduchim for their children. They did everything. It, it's not shayach to understand how they did this. It's not possible. We are so fragile that if anything goes, if we get a paper cut, we're done. You know, that's it. I'm not, I can't do anything. I, I'm, I'm like, they were able to, to do everything, literally without a shirt on their back. Literally. They'd have nothing. They came to these shores with literally nothing. I don't think they necessarily had a place to sleep or a place to eat or a place to daven. Or play. They, 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 were literally, they lost their entire families, their entire communities. They were probably scarred emotionally. But they didn't let that stop them. And somehow, someway, the world that we are living in is theirs. It's not our world. We didn't build this. Everything that we have, all the shuls, all the yeshivas, all the beis were set in place. If they weren't physically built by them, the, the motions were, were set in place by these great heroes that survived the war and they were determined to build a new Mizbech on these shores in Eretz Yisrael and throughout the world. They didn't get down, they didn't lose their amuna. they didn't say, if God could do that, I'm done. Some did, but most, many of them did not and they were heroes. Mamish, unbelievable heroes. And we know the G'dayli Yisrael that did this, Rav Aaron Cutler and, and, uh, and the Panovich Shirov and, and, and the Blue Rebbe and the Satmar Rebbe and all people that survived the war and what they did. But there are many, many thousands of Balabatim that we don't know about. 
that's, that were starting shuls, young Israels, and shtiblach, and, uh, you know, and, and batei medrash, and, and, and planting seeds that, that are sprouting today in ways that are really unfathomable. And I'm not comparing anything to the Mabel or the Churban Bais or the, or the Holocaust, because those are things in a, in a league of their own. But in our lifetime, I would say that there are two events that happened. Well, I shouldn't say our because the first event, I don't know if everybody in this room was even born then, but one event was 9-11. And for those of you, none of you except for... Uh, Ramesha and myself remember, you know, 9-11 and how it literally changed the world. B'nai Yishmael hijacked airliners and they plowed them into World Trade Center 1, World Trade Center 2. Thousands of people died. It was a shock to the world that they were able to get away with this, that they were able to pull off this, this crazy thing. It, it, it woke up America militarily they went after terrorists in, in, in the far in the Middle East. Airports have never been the same. The security has never been the same. Things that we took for granted that were given, everything changed. The whole world like like fastened their seatbelt and, and took off in, in a new way. My son was born, my, my Bukhar was born a month before 9-11. In fact the morning of 9-11 my wife was taking a bus to the city um, to, for, for, a, for a checkup, for a wellness visit. Um, and, and the buses, she was standing by the bus stop, and the bus said, no, 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 there's no you can't get into Manhattan. There was a, some accident. They didn't know what it was. Some plane went into a building. They didn't know at that time what it was, but no, no, they knew that the traffic was not going to be able to get into the city that morning, so she just came home. It wasn't so far from the bus stop. But he was born a month before 9-11, and I, I used to tell his friends when they'd come to the house for Shabbos when they were older, like bar mitzvah age, I asked them, like, what's your birthday? Shlema's birthday is August 1st, 2001. What's your birthday? Oh, mine, October 2001. Uh, you know, July two. I said, listen, I just want to tell you something, okay? You and my son are same class, same basic age, but my son was born in one world and you were born in a different world. He was born, obviously he didn't remember 9-11, but he was born in a world that was pre-9-11, and there was a world that was post-9-11. It's a completely different world. Completely different world. You don't understand it because you, you grew up in that new world, so you think it's normal to have to take your belt and your shoes off at the airport every time you go through security, and you have to have you know, a million and one precautions, and, but, and, and, and it's toned down a lot since 9-11. This is not really, you know, we already mellowed, but that time was a crazy, crazy period in the world, but it was a different world. There was a pre-world, pre-9-11 world and a post-9-11, and things changed. You know, I'm thinking now there's really three, three incidents. Corona is another thing. There was a pre-corona world and there was a post-corona world, and, and things should have changed. They really didn't change, unfortunately. They didn't. You know, I thought when we were having corona that we would you know, we would learn certain lessons about what we need to do in life, what's important, what's not important. Family is important. Friends are important. Making, you know, million-dollar chasnas, not important. You can get married in your backyard, it seems, and also be married, you know, and that works. I thought, okay, now, from now on, we're going to make, you know, $5,000 chasnas instead of $50,000, instead of $100,000 chasnas. And 
you know, that lasted about three seconds. And then, you know, once, you know, people, once it was over Corona and everybody would took off their masks and started shaking people's hands, boom, we're back to the fanciest weddings again, fanciest bar mitzvahs again. And, you know, and, and we didn't really learn our lessons, unfortunately, from Corona. Kaddish Baruch Hu wanted us uh, to learn certain lessons. And I'm not sure that we learned many lessons, if any, from that period. But I think what we experienced on Simchas Torah is another major, major event in world history that maybe deserves a place on, on the same shelf as, as all the other events that I mentioned, a Chorban and a Holocaust, on Simchas Torah in Eretz Yisrael, to have B'nai Yishmael run like behemoths, like chayas that they are, and slaughter, Al-Kiddush Hashem, 1,300 people. If it would have been one person that was, that was shechted Al-Kiddush Hashem, it would have been a, a, an outcry like you couldn't imagine. We would have gone to war for that alone. We would have invaded Gaza for one shvuya alone, for one captive alone. But the numbers are astonishing. 1,300 Yidin that were killed in one day 199, or the number I think is even higher now, over 200 shvuyim as we speak. Hopefully they're alive in somewhere in some tunnel in, 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 in Gaza under who knows what conditions with behemoths and chayas that are shimrim of the shvuyim. We know what the Gemara says about women that are taking shvuyim and what their status is to, as, as far as kaihanim are concerned. It's a pachad naira what's going on right now as we speak. And there was the world before that Simchas Torah, a more innocent world, a, a maybe a more naive world, thinking that we had real Shmir in Eretz Yisrael, the army and the police and everything, we're protected, we're safe, we're secure, let's go there, let's you know, go to Geula, let's do Simchas Beis let's let's party, everything is great, Sukkot and Yerushalayim, beautiful. And then we got this wake-up call with an Eilam Chadash that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't protect us. And Hashem lo yishmar ir. Baruch Hu is not at the helm protecting us every, every minute of every day actively. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take a step back. Then whatever we do with all the shin bet, with all the, with all the security systems, with all the technology, with all of the, the F-35 fighter jets, with all the Iron Dome missiles, it's worth a big zero. That's the takeaway to come back to the Rabbi to recognize there's a God in the world that's running things, not Bibi, and not the Chayal, and not the this, and not the, the, the Minister of Defense. Not, nobody is running the world except for the Rabbi The Iron Dome doesn't work if HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't want it to protect us, and nothing will work. You can take power gliders over the fence of Gaza and, uh, with, 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 with AK-47s and mow down 230 people at a concert if HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that that's the Gezer, that's what's supposed to happen, and you can't stop it. And we see how vulnerable we are, as we saw how vulnerable, vulnerable we were during the Holocaust, and how vulnerable we were, and we have never again, we have slogans, but we're still vulnerable. We've never been stronger militarily. But we're so weak, we're so fragile. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to be fragile, we're fragile. So we're the new Nayaks. We're the new Nayaks that are B'day Reisav. We had a pre- Simchas Torah world, that was one generation. Now we have a post-Simchas Torah world. And the question is, how are we responding to that? 
are we just saying Shalom Alainafshi Baruch Hashem? I'm not in Eretz Yisrael. It seems relatively calm here. I know there are some protests in some Ivy League schools, but for the most part, it seems like we're safe. So I feel bad. I'll say tell them for them, but I don't really feel it personally. Or you could respond by building Mizbeach, by saying, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I recognize that you're in control of everything and I'm coming close to you again. I'm doing tshuva. I never want my davening to be shvach again. I never want my learning to be shvach again. I never want my chesed to be shvach again. I never want my ben adam l'chaver, ben adam I don't want to go back to that pre-Simchas Torah world. I don't want to be like Corona, like everything is, let's party again. I want to be able to understand what is going on. I understand that Kaddish Baruch Hu is sending me a message. What's the message? The message is to, to change. How to change? I'm not a Makobal. I can't tell you what exactly HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants. But we all know what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from us individually. We know what we're, what we're weak in. We know what we're strong in. We know what we could be stronger in. And we know what we're weak in. We all know that. I could tell you what I'm, I'm not going to, but I could tell you the things that I'm weak in. I could tell you the things that I need improvement to, about. But I have to tell it to myself, and then I have to start to change. And if I don't start to change, I just say, no, you know, whatever, we'll get over it. This whole, you know, now Israel's back in control. Gaza, flattened and making it into a parking lot. Everything's going to be good again. Really? Everything's going to be good? Are those 1,300 Hashem going to come back? Are all the Shvuyim just magically going to come back? And if they do a Mitzvah Hashem, are they not going to be scarred for the rest of their life? Do you think that there's something that is going to be able to be brought back because we bomb out the whole Gaza and we kill every man, woman, and child there? I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, but is that going to be the solution? Is that, is that how we're, what we think is the takeaway? Or let heads roll for being so, you know, out of control and for not, for being asleep at the wheel on, on October 7th? Is that the takeaway? That's what people will think is the takeaway, but that's not what B'nai Tairaf to think is. The takeaway is HaKadosh Baruch Hu is sending us a personalized message. And that is that I want Mashiach to come. But I want you to want Mashiach to come. I want you to feel vulnerability in the Gaulas. Don't think that you're so strong, you're so smart, you're so rich, you're so powerful, you have everything, and nothing can stop you. It's so not true. Shatter that myth. Understand that we are vulnerable. That doesn't mean to say that we should be, you know, trembling day and night and not functional. We have to be accomplishing, we have to do, we have to do our college work, we have to do our job, we have to do, we have to, whatever we're doing, we have to keep doing. We have to do it with Simcha. We have to, you know, I have a family, I have to sing by a Shabbos table's mirrors. I'm not supposed to be sitting and crying at a Shabbos table. But we have to make ourselves resolute that we have to accomplish something as a result of this. Don't let this opportunity go to waste. We have two generations, and if you can't see the difference, and you can't understand it, now it's a post-Mabal generation. I have a new opportunity of Ischachis, freshening up everything, rebuilding, build a new Mizbeach. If I was learning Shvach before this, now I want to really learn well. I, wanna, you know, I, want, I don't want to battle so much with my Chavrusa. I don't want to daven with a half a davening or a misdavening by sleeping late. I want to be able to make gedarm for myself with my shmir senai, with my shmir halashin. These are things that we have to do. It's not something that's, that's optional. And if we do it, then we're going to be able to be like Nayach and to be like Rav Gifter, to be like the Panavichirav, to be like people that went, rolled up their sleeves and did something new and built a new world, a much better world, an improved world. A world that's ready for Mashiach, that's ushering the... You feel the ikvis of the Mashiach. You feel the terror and you feel the, you feel the message from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm ready. 
Yom Geula Ba, the day of Geula is upon us. I'm just waiting for you to open the door for Mashiach. He's ready. Mashiach is by the door Mamish. And if we were able to understand that and take it in and really absorb that lesson, savor that lesson, think about that lesson, that we're living now in an Olam Chadish, a Dar Chadish, a whole new world, then Amitz Hashem, we will be the world, we will be the Dar that does something that all the previous generations, the Rambam's generation, Kivager's generation, Moshe Feinstein's generation, they were somehow not able to accomplish, but yet we could. And that is to bring Mashiach to Kenu. Amen.